Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast, elevating emergency nursing one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Hey everyone, and welcome to the final episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast first season. The next episode will be in February. For today's episode, I had called up my friend Scott Weingart to discuss about treating hypotension as an emergency. It's a topic that I believe is important for our patients, and it really depends on good nursing, but it's so hard to find information on it, good information. So luckily, Scott agreed to talk about hypotension, MAPS, and how he manages these patients. If you don't know who Scott Weingart is, you may know him as the host of a podcast and blog called MCRIT. More info about Scott in the show notes at recessnurse.com. And now, on to the episode. Hi, Scott. How you doing? Hey. So, uh, thanks for coming on to the show. No worries. Uh, Always good to help out an old friend. Um, So, I think it's fair to say that you and I are both a little obsessed with perfusion in our patients. Um, So, as the person who has coined the term bringing upstairs care downstairs, um, for those of you who don't know what that means, it's ICU care in the ED, um, I thought you'd be the perfect person to discuss how good nursing is key to maintaining adequate perfusion and especially to treat low MAPS as an emergency. Sounds fun to me. Uh, So... Let's discuss what a MAP is. So it's a mean arterial pressure. Um, So what exactly is a MAP and why is it a good measurement to address adequate perfusion? Sure. So, you know, you're going to be dealing with three blood pressure numbers, essentially. Systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and then the MAP. And the MAP is uh, kind of the mean pressure. It's taking the uh, most of the cycle relying on the diastolic and then some of the cycle, like about a third of it in normal people relying on the systolic. So it's kind of like the average, if you want to think about it, of the two, um, but not just, you know, adding them and dividing by two because more time is spent in diastole. But what it really represents is it's probably the better number for understanding organ perfusion. Right. So that, so let's, let's talk about organ perfusion. Um, we're talking about really sick patients who, you know, there's definitely, you're, you're trying to make sure that all your organs are being perfused to prevent morbidity, mortality. Um, so what is the minimal map to adequately perfuse the three main organs? We're talking about the brain, heart, and kidney. No one knows is is really the answer. Um, I'm going to give you some uh, rules of thumb, some of the things I rely on, but understand they are pure uh, imagination. No, No one has the precise answers to these questions. And it probably varies patient to patient. So uh, these these are really just uh, ways to get through a shift, but don't go around stating with absolute certainty that any of these numbers mean anything. All right. So the number 65, uh, map of 65 keeps coming up. But it, I, I think it may, you know, it, there's something that may come up where maybe a map requirement of 65 may not be Uh, adequate enough for certain patients? Or should we be looking at just, okay, straight up, we're just going to do a map of 65? Or should we really consider different patients with different uh, causes for a low map? So let's say a subarachnoid hemorrhage versus a distributive shock, septic shock patient, 
versus a post-cardiac arrest um, patient who ended up getting ROSC or someone who's in cardiogenic shock? Um, you know, should we be tailoring our MAP perfusions for these different types of patients? Oh my God, that question encompasses like 300 things. So let's let's take it piece by piece. Let, let's let's first discuss a broad overview of organ perfusion. Now you mentioned the three biggies, the brain, the heart, and the kidney. Uh, the brain does okay, probably even less than 65. Um, it might not be like, you know, big smile happy, but it'll be usually fine until you get to a map of around 40 or somewhere around there where you start getting uh, clouding of consciousness, unconsciousness, what have you. The heart... Uh, as you know, fills primarily during diastole. Uh, and if you wanted to, you could use a diastolic blood pressure just for the heart. Uh, but we still usually use MAP for that. And we know the heart is usually happy above 65. And it might be happier a little bit lower, um, you know, in its 55, 50 range. But we don't know. And generally, we just say 65. Um, and the reason we do is because of that last organ you mentioned, the kidney. The kidney is remarkably sensitive to low blood pressures and malperfusion. Um, it's easy to damage if you spend uh, any long period of time at low perfusion states. And the kidney just says, hey, you know, if, if anything's going wrong with the body, don't give me any blood. I don't need it because, uh, you know, all I do is make pee. Let the, let the brain and heart have it. But that, that doesn't lead to long-term goodness. Uh, if you lose your kidneys, a critical illness becomes a lot harder. So keeping the beans perfused is something we really try to do. And so in general, we feel 65 is good for the kidneys, 65 is good for the brain, 65 is good for the heart. And that's why uh, we usually use that as our number to shoot for. Now, you can individualize it, sure. You show me like a 50-kilo, 40-kilo woman who's been walking around with a 85 systolic her whole life, and that's just her normal blood pressure. When she's gone to the doctor's office for the past 10 years, she probably doesn't need a MAP of 65. But in the ED, are you going to know that information? Are you going to have, you know, uh, 24 hours to observe the patient at lower MAPs and see that their mental status is still good, they're still making urine? Of course not. So for us in the ED, in general, we just uh, empirically say 65 is our goal for everyone. All right. I think that's a great explanation. Um, and and usually for me, when I the first I notice is the kidneys um, not perfusing. And that's because there's no urine output. Um, and you're right. Like it definitely shunts. And these are patients that we have. Uh, there's indwelling urinary catheters in there. Um so that's usually one of the first things, first signs for me, um, for nursing. Well, it, it's hard. Okay, what you could say pretty definitively is if they're making good urine output and you haven't given them Lasix and you haven't like just failed everything and put them on dopamine. So if you're not not messing with the system and they're making good urine output, you can feel pretty good that their kidneys are being perfused. You can't say the opposite necessarily. Um, just due to all the other things going on with them, they may have taken a hit to their kidneys. They might have acute tubular necrosis. They might have some form of ischemic kidney injury that even when you have a good perfusing MAP level now, they're still not going to make urine. So its presence is good. Its absence is not necessarily indicative of the need for a higher MAP. Um, so let's... Let's talk about MAPs and a low systolic blood pressure. I mean, at some point, does do you, can you get a higher MAP and then you have a really low systolic blood pressure, maybe like in the 70s or 60s? At what point does a MAP 
you throw that out the window and, you know, you look at the entire um, blood pressure. Yeah. Well, in that circumstance, you know, let's say you had someone who was hovering with a map uh, and systolic very close to each other, uh, I don't really care. If their map is okay, uh, that's going to be what really gives m most of your organs their perfusion, and I'm just fine with that. It's it's actually uh, the opposite situation that really uh, makes you afraid, because sometimes you'll look up at the blood pressure, and this is especially present in uh, hyperdynamic septic patients, and you'll see 100 over 20, for instance. Now, if you're not really keen to what's going on, you might say, ah, I'll take 100 systolic. They're fine. But no, they're not fine. Their map is quite low. They're not doing much organ perfusion. Uh, that's a bad circumstance. That's a patient in the throes of vasodilatory shock. They might be partially compensating by an increased cardiac output. That's what's being denoted by that systolic blood pressure. But that patient's still really in trouble. And one like little like tick down further on their blood pressure, and they could be in cardiac arrest. So uh, that's the situation where the two uh, really need to be discerned, as having an okay systolic but a very low map is still very very bad okay that sounds that sounds really amazing um because i you know at some point i i kind of think you know what where should we go so really we should be looking at the whole thing and we should know really what our patients are going through um and then that leads to so i i always harp on this with titrating drips um you know your map is going to drop um maybe because um let's say it's a post-cardiac arrest patient, the epinephrine starts to wear out, um, you know, whatever other um, arrest medications will start to wear out. And now you have a little bit of a low map, uh, you titrate, titrate. Um, but how long is too long before a patient may start to develop morbidity? How much time do we have um, to get those other drips, uh, our vasopressor drips running? Gosh, uh, you know, this used to be merely intuition, and now uh, after doing a interview with a, a Dr. Chalwa, uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that right now, uh, on the podcast, he he pointed me to some anesthesia literature. Uh, so there's real actual evidence for this now to say like even a minute or two at low maps may be too much, uh, and certainly you know waiting 20 minutes for pharmacy to send up a drip is probably way too long, and your kidneys might actually be getting damaged just in that short period of time. So I've always been uh, remarkably quick to react to low maps, uh, but now I'm even uh, more concerned about any period of time. And uh, look, if the map's 62, don't go crazy. They're probably going to be okay for a few minutes, but you know maps of 40s or 50s. Uh, even one minute may be too much. So we really react quickly. All right. That sounds really good because I'm on the same, I'm on the same page with you. Um, I'm not really happy with the let's wait and see approach. Um, because I, I mean, I feel if there's not enough perfusion, then our patients are going to wake up, you know, at some point. And I'm worried that we're going to have, um, more morbidity. Maybe their cognitive function may not be um, as well intact as maybe it could have been uh, if we had treated this low map as an emergency. Yeah, and you know, like we say, the brain is certainly something we worry about. I, I'm pretty confident the brain could take a little bit of hypotension for a period of time. I, I know the kidneys can't, yeah. and depending on the degree of uh, coronary 
occlusion on your some of your older patients, their hearts might not like it either. And so we react quickly. And now there's no barrier to reacting quickly. In the old days, we used to wait on low maps to see the results of fluid loading, unless the maps were quite low. But you'd have a patient, they'd be 55, and you'd say, yeah, you know, I probably could start pressures, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to give them, you know, another two or three liters of fluid and see if that brings it up. And that would leave those patients potentially at a low map for, you know, half hour, an hour. Um, and now from the information we have in the current day, uh, even if those patients did bring up their map of the fluids, it probably would have dropped back down again because the fluids don't last to maintain maps. So now if I see a patient with 55, I'll put them right on a peripheral norepinephrine drip and then if I really still feel they need fluids, I'll put the fluids in in the setting of that drip. And if I am able now to titrate the drip off, great. But there was no harm from keeping a norepinephrine drip on for 40 minutes. Uh, but I think there's definite harm to not and leaving the map down. Yeah, I, I really agree with you on that. Um, I also want to bring up something called a permissive hypotension. Um, a lot of times uh, I've heard this more um, initially from trauma patients. Um, and the idea was to prevent bleeding, um, once the clot has been, um, formed. Um, but then the other times that you hear about this is more in your neural patients. Um, can you discuss that a little bit? Um, because generally I think a permissive hypotension is generally around the map of 50, let's say. Well, this is it's a very confusing area if you try to read about this because people use the terms and they don't mean what they what they think they mean or what they say they mean sometimes okay the original studies that created the idea of permissive hypotension uh, were done in Texas Bickle was the uh, main author to look up if you want to read these studies and it was a study on penetrating trauma and it really wasn't a study of uh, a, a specific blood pressure goal so much as don't give fluids, meaning crystalloids, uh, unless the patient was like profoundly hypotensive. And so as a result, uh, if patients weren't requiring fluids and had a normal blood pressure, a higher than permissive hypotension, they didn't lower the blood pressures. So what they really should have called it is a study of, you know, free flowing crystalloid versus fluid restriction. And that's what those studies looked at. And they didn't show really anything on whether you should keep your patient's blood pressure low or not. And they also didn't study whether if the patients got hypotensive and you gave them blood and FFP, which is our current thinking on these things, if they would have done better or worse. It was solely a study of hypotensive patients in the pre-hospital arena, whether or not you should be able to give things like normal saline or lactate or ringers. So that's where it originally came from. Now, um, you know, one of my mentors, Rick Dutton, developed this idea, I think, a, a little bit more profoundly. And what he would advocate permissive hypotension is, is to keep your patient from being vasoconstricted uh, because some of these patients, you look at them, you give them one unit of blood in these profound trauma patients and all of a sudden they have a systolic of like 150 and then like that blood bleeds out into whatever's exsanguinating inside their body and now they're down to a, uh, a systolic of 50 and then you give another unit of blood and it's 150 and 50 and it keeps going back and forth because uh, they're incredibly vasoconstricted. They're not actually perfusing any of their organs even with that systolic of 150. So what he said to do is um, if their MAP or, you know, he used systolic blood pressure, but MAP could be used interchangeably on this idea. If their MAP is less than 65, give them product, blood or FFP. Okay, so now that's going to pump their MAP up a little bit. If their MAP goes up, 
to whatever level you set as your arbitrary upper threshold, like let's say a map of 80, uh, then give them some uh, anesthetic, in his case fentanyl, and vasodilate them a little bit as a result because fentanyl will uh, vasodilate patients by stealing some of, their, some of their sympathetic tone. It's not a direct vasodilator. It's vasodilating them by stealing their body's stress response. Okay, so now they drop to a map of 60. So you give them a, a, a unit of FFP. Now they're back up to 70. Okay, you sit there a while. Now they're back down to 55. Let's give them some more product. And what you're doing is you're hovering around a map of 65, so they're not actually going any lower than we've already discussed in this podcast. But when they get too high it's telling us that they're too vasoconstricted. And now what you're doing eventually is you're getting a patient who is vasodilated with a low but still above our threshold of 65 map. And they're guaranteed at that point to be perfusing all of their organs, and yet they're not having blood pressures that may increase bleeding. So I think that's a much more thoughtful vision of what permissive hypotension is. All right, sounds good. And um, do you want to talk about Permissive hypotension in neural patients? Yeah, I'm not sure that really is an applicable term in neural patients. I think I understand what you're getting at, which is uh, having lower blood pressure goals in patients uh, with neurological catastrophes, for instance, an intracranial hemorrhage or a subarachnoid. But that's not really permissive hypotension because uh, let's say in my subarachnoid patient with a uh, aneurysm that's unsecured, I tell you I'd like the systolic to be less than 120. Well, that's still giving you a map well above 65, probably a map above 80. So we have upper threshold blood pressure goals, but it's not permissive hypotension. You know, my intracranial hemorrhage patients that don't have subarachnoids, I, I shoot for a systolic goal of less than 140. But I still want a map in those patients above 80. And if for some reason they had a concomitant reason of being hypotensive, uh, I would actually augment their blood pressure to bring that map above 80 because I still need to keep these patients uh, with cerebral perfusion pressures. So that's not permissive hypotension. That's just having upper blood pressure goals. Now, you might have noticed, and I'm sure you did because you're keen to this stuff, that I, now I've switched from map to systolic. What's going on here? I just told you systolic's a useful, useless number. Systolic's useless for our lower limits. Um, most of us use the systolic blood pressure as our goal for the upper limits. And why? Why have we shifted from map here? Well, it's because that's the highest they're going to be during their cardiac cycle. So the map represents the uh, goal for our lowest threshold. We never want our average to be lower than the map. We never want our upper limit to be higher than the systolic because the systolic represents the highest they're going to be. So for these neurocritical care patients with bleeds in their head or an aortic dissection patient or a uh, ruptured AAA patient or a huge AAA that hasn't ruptured yet and we don't want it to, instead of using the MAP, we'll often use the systolic blood pressure to represent uh, the highest we would ever want them to be during the cardiac cycle. All right. That's a great explanation. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up um, MAPs versus systolic blood pressure in terms of monitoring. The reason why I brought up the permissive hypotension was um, in neural patients is because there's a lot of um, stuff out there where nurses are saying, well, you know, it's okay to have a map of 40 because some patients will just live at 40. So Scott, um, what about patients with uh, neural, neural emergencies? Should we ever be applying um, permissive uh, hypotension, low maps for these neural patients that have emergencies? Can they live in a map of 40? 
Well, you got to understand, I don't think anyone could live in a map of 40, but the neuro patients, uh, what we need to achieve now is brain perfusion, just like everyone else, but they have a barrier to brain perfusion uh, because most of these patients, uh, if they have a severe uh, neurological emergency, for instance, an intracranial hemorrhage, we assume a certain degree of increased intracranial pressure. So now that patient who at a map of 60 may have been perfusing okay, now because of the increased intracranial pressure won't get brain perfusion, uh, won't be able to get that blood into the brain and you might need a higher map in order to do it. And so, you know, the, the really gross calculation we do for this for cerebral perfusion pressure is we just take the map and we subtract the patient's uh, intracranial pressure from it. And as a result, uh, you'll see if you assume like, you know, any patient with an intracranial injury has like an ICP of 10, and if they actually are sick, they have a big bleed, it hasn't been released yet, let's say 20, uh, then to get a cerebral perfusion pressure uh, where we want it, then we, we'd need a map of 80. Because, you know, to get that same 60, which is what we're use, used to using, uh, we, we'd take the 20 away from it. So not only are you not allowed to leave these patients permissibly hypotensive, not only are you allowed to leave them at a normal map, you really want to push the map in these patients to guarantee that cerebral perfusion pressure. All right. That sounds really good. Um, yeah, I think especially with our ischemic stroke patients, um, I mean, if anything, that penumbra really, really needs extra perfusion because that's that's the key of having like the most um, cognitive function post-injury. Well, absolutely. And you've brought up an important point. Now, the thing is about the ischemic strokes is most of them are not hypotensive. But if you did have a patient that had a concomitant reason for hypotension, you better fix that map or you've killed the penumbra just as you've alluded to. Now, it goes even further in a certain class of patients. Uh, if you have, like, for instance, a posterior uh, obstruction, let's say a, a basal or stroke patient that you're waiting for some form of reperfusion therapy, it might even be a patient you need to transfer in order to get that therapy, uh, you might actually want to push the patient's map beyond where they're sitting. So you might want to get these patients up to a map of 90 or 100, even though they're sitting at a nice place of 75, um, because they have uh, a, a barrier to brain perfusion that may be overwhelmed by pushing that map. And there's some of these uh, stroke patients who actually and this is weird, you know, when they're at a map of 90, uh, they're there with no neuro deficit. They might have resolved their stroke symptoms. And then for whatever reason, you know, maybe their Lasix that they were taking at home kicks in, they start urinating and their map slips down to 68. All of a sudden they have a recurrence of those stroke symptoms. And your answer, you know, if they're not a TPA candidate at this point, would be to actually push their map back up to that 90 that's the point at which their perfusion was guaranteeing good, um, that their brain was actually happy. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the brain is what makes us who we are. So I think we should do everything we can to, to perfuse it. So what started this discussion was because you had, uh, your guest Ming Chala, um, discussing about a possible agent angiotensin two for septic shock patients. Um, so a lot of times we end up using norepinephrine um, drips uh, for these patients to maintain a look. Let's say you have um, a hypotensive patient and you have a norepi drip running. When should we start considering a vasopressin drip for the septic shock patients? Okay, so here, here's my 
super simple way of thinking about this stuff. Uh, norepi is my first choice vasopressor for pretty much any patient. Uh, maybe the only one where you're going to choose something different first is your anaphylactic patient where epi may make more sense. But for pretty much everyone else, I just choose norepinephrine. So that's easy. Only one drug you have to think about. Anytime the patient's hypotensive, we reach for norepi. We'll put it peripherally if we don't have a central line. Uh, we'll usually switch over to a midline rather than a central line in my shop right now, but that's kind of cutting edge. And we'll just run it with that. We'll titrate the map at 65. If the patient starts getting higher on their norepi doses. Somewhere in like, usually the 20 microgram per minute range is where I start saying, huh, let's think about this for a second. The first thing we do before we reach for a second agent is we ask ourselves, are we missing something? Uh, is the patient uh, hypothyroid? We haven't been hitting it. Are they adrenally insufficient? Uh, are they actually bleeding from a GI bleed and we're treating it with pressors because we didn't realize that maybe the patient needs a guaiac? Are they profoundly hypocalcemic? Do they have a toxicologic emergency like a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker overdose that we just missed in our history? Um, is this actually a state of fluid depletion and they benefit from more fluids? Uh, this is when you want your doc to come in with the ultrasound machine if they're capable and take a look at the heart and see, is this actually a problem of poor cardiac? output. And so you, you do this cognitive stop point. And then if you say to yourself, no, I still think they're vasodilatory, then that's when you'd add on an agent like vasopressin, which is also a profound vasopressor. Now, if on the other hand, they did that echo and the heart's not doing much, then my second agent at this point would be adding on an inotropic epinephrine drip. All right, Scott. Um, thank you very much. I think that totally answers the questions in, um, in a very easy, um, easy way in terms of how we should start considering um, other agents if need be. Anything else you want to add? No, I think, uh, <laughs> I think that pretty much hits it. All right, Scott, thank you so much. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. And in case you're wondering, I don't really believe in permissive hypotension. It just doesn't really make sense physiologically. And maybe we should just stop using that term altogether. Thank you to all of my Recess Nurse podcast listeners. You've made 2017 amazing, and I'm humbled by your support and encouragement. I'm really looking forward to 2018. Happy holidays. This is your host, Yunsi Dursa. Peace. You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. 